What do the names San Sebastian, San Valentino, San Lorenzo, and San Callisto have in common? They are the names of four of Rome's famous catacombs. On our recent trip to Italy, Kathy and I, we visited the catacombs of San Sebastian, one of 40 different subterranean burial grounds outside the city of Rome. The catacombs are carved from the soft volcanic rock of southern Italy. They're an underground maze of tunnels and chambers lined with burial cubicles. Like ant colonies, catacomb layers burrow down into the ground. Among the pagans of early Rome, cremation was the popular means of disposing of their dead. But with the Christians came the belief in a bodily resurrection. As the body of Jesus was made incorruptible, so will the bodies of his followers. We'll all be resurrected. Thus, out of respect for the body's future restoration, the Christians began to wrap and bury their loved ones. Of course, this isn't to say that in modern times, cremation isn't a suitable substitute for a Christian. In ancient Rome, cremation was tied to the Greek view of the physical world and human flesh. You see, the Greeks believed that this tangible world is sinful or evil. The body is a cage for the soul. Thus, salvation for the soul is freedom from the flesh. And the Greco-Roman disdain for all things physical was epitomized by the cremation of the body. In reality, though, creation, cremation doesn't harm the body any more than natural decay. Either way, it's dust to dust and ashes to ashes whether the deterioration takes place in 20 minutes or 20 years. But in the ancient world, Christian burial showed respect for the human body as God's creation and hope for its future resurrection. Well, this is why the Christians of Rome wanted to bury their loved ones. But the cost of land was steep, and many of the Christians were poor. Those who started out rich often became poor in the wake of persecution. And so Christians carved out underground graveyards. During the days of pagan Rome, Christians were often martyred by paranoid emperors. And many of these faithful believers were buried in the catacombs. It's a sobering experience today to visit Rome and to walk these tunnels. You're humbled by the valiant sacrifice and the courageous faith of so many Christians. Another of the catacombs' treasures is the window it provides into early Christian belief. The caverns are decorated with engravings and frescoes and many symbols. And it's interesting, two images of Jesus are popular in the catacombs, more so than all others. First is Jesus the healer. He's depicted over and over again with his hands on people, healing people, mostly poor people. The Roman god of healing would have never touched a commoner, but Jesus did. The other familiar image in the catacombs is that of Jesus, the good shepherd, usually with a lamb over his shoulders. It's interesting that in the Christian graveyard, Jesus was most identified as a caring healer and as a good shepherd. You would think these ancient martyrs would have doubted Jesus' love for them. Where was he when they were thrown to the lions or burned at the stake? Why didn't he heal their tortured body before it died? Where was the shepherd when his lambs were being led to the slaughter? 
Apparently, the Christians believe that Jesus does heal. He does come to the rescue, but not always in our timing or in the way we like. Christians in the catacombs believe that Jesus is the eternal healer. He's the shepherd that escorts the sheep from this life into the next. You see, I bring this all up because the seven churches of Revelation chapter 2 and 3 of these seven churches, Smyrna is often called the church of the catacombs. It is the persecuted church. In fact, I've entitled this morning's message, Suffering in Smyrna. It's interesting that in each of these seven letters to the churches, the Lord Jesus, He follows a similar template. First, you have a revelation of the glorified Christ. Each time, Jesus recalls a feature of the vision John received in chapter 1. You remember to Ephesus, Jesus comes as He who holds the seven stars in His right hand and walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. There's this revelation of Jesus the church needs to see. Then second, there is a commendation of the church. Jesus offers encouragement. He says, here's what you're doing right. To the Ephesians, he said, I know your works, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. But then third, after the revelation and the commendation, there's a correction. For most of the churches have gotten off course, and here the captain attempts to right the ship. Who can forget his words to the mothership at Ephesus? You have left your first love. But let me point out, Smyrna is one of only two churches that Jesus doesn't need to correct. There's nothing negative, he says, of Smyrna. All of his comments are positive. Apparently, this was an exemplary church. The church at Smyrna handled her hardships in a noble manner. Persecution had purified this church. Well, verse 8 begins Jesus' letter. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write. Now, Smyrna is the only one of the seven cities in chapters 2 and 3 that's still an active modern city. Today, Smyrna is known as Izmir, Turkey. The coastal city of Smyrna was 35 miles north of Ephesus and was called the Crown of Asia for its scenic beauty. The first century Smyrna competed with Ephesus as the province's most handsome and prosperous city. Today, tourists flock to visit the ruins of Ephesus, because that's all that's left. It's just stone and rubble there in Ephesus. But to do so, you have to catch a flight to Izmir. And then you have to stay and eat and spend your money in a hotel at Izmir. Ultimately, Smyrna won the competition. One thing is certain about ancient Smyrna. The city gave off a pleasant aroma. The word Smyrna is an old Greek word which means myrrh, which was an aromatic resin. Myrrh gum comes from trees that are slid open and then twisted. The harvesters, they wrench the limb over and over to bleed out the gum. This is what becomes the spice. How ironic. This is how the believers in Smyrna became so pleasing to God. They were wounded and wrenched by the hands of persecution until they bled sweetness. Rather than grow resentful or bitter toward God, the twisting of opposition caused a tighter and purer allegiance. It yielded a more pungent testimony. The church at Smyrna was a sweet fragrance to God. And not only was myrrh a sweet-smelling resin, the aroma was so strong it could mask the odor of death. Thus it was applied whenever a corpse was wrapped for entombment. To the ancients, myrrh 
was a burial spice. Thus the Greek name Smyrna or Myrrh was synonymous with death and mourning, which further identifies this city's church with persecuted believers. You know, last week we mentioned that the seven churches of Revelation are a representative sample of all churches at the time, through the ages, even today. You know, there were dozens of churches in Asia in the first century. It wasn't just these seven churches in their location on the mail route or just coincidence that caused Jesus to choose these seven and to arrange them in this order. No, He had bigger reasons for doing so. Could it be that Jesus saw in these churches a prophetic, prophetic glimpse of all church history? Not only is each church an actual church, but the seven together paint a picture of the Christian era from the first century down to today. Ephesus was the first century church of the apostles. Many of its members were eyewitnesses of Jesus' death and resurrection. And yet what a testimony, a sad testimony to the wandering and fickle heart of man that already the early church had begun to leave behind its first love. You remember from last week, Jesus had to rebuke the church. He had to tell her how to refuel her passion and her zeal. He said, remember from where you've fallen. Then repent or turn around your affections back toward me. And then repeat the first steps that caused your faith to grow in the beginning. You see, Jesus knew it was easier to act your way into a feeling than it is to feel your way into an action. And thus he tells the church at Ephesus to repeat those first impulses of a fresh faith. But here's why it was so necessary for the early church to be on fire for Jesus. Because just down the road of history in Smyrna, there were hot fires raging. Hot fires of persecution. The church of the second and third centuries, the Smyrna era, would experience horrible persecution. The church would need to draw from all its passion and its zeal. In fact, between the years 65 and 312 A.D., over 5 million Christians were martyred by Roman emperors. Believers in Jesus, just like you and me, fellow members of the universal church, were crucified and left on the cross until the vultures pecked the flesh off their bones. Fellow believers, just like you and me, were fed to the lions. The blood of our brothers still stains the Colosseum floor. We, mind you, we were dressed in lamb skins and thrown into the arena among wild dogs. We were dipped in wax, impaled on poles, and used as candles to light the emperor's parties. We, people just like you and me, members of our church, were abused and mistreated for the cause of Christ. And yet some of us today, we gripe and complain and get mad at God because we didn't get the parking spot we wanted this morning. If the details of our life don't go our way, we wonder, well, where is God? Why has He abandoned me? Why has God let me down? You know, when it's cool to be a Christian, we're all in. But when we can't get a date because of our Christian standards, or when we're laughed at, or when we're pressured by our boss, or when we're rejected for Jesus' sake, oh, we're ready to pack it in. Christianity is no fun anymore. What's in it for me? What about the abundant life Jesus promised? You know, if you're a selfish, spineless Christian and you make it to heaven, please don't hang out with the guys from Smyrna. 
When it's time to show your scars, you might be just a little embarrassed when the church of Smyrna breaks out their scars. Don't expect these guys to empathize with your shallowness. Where did we get the idea that God promised us a trouble-free life? You see, He promised us just the opposite. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. G.K. Chesterton once said, Jesus promised His disciples three things. That they would be completely fearless and absurdly happy and in constant trouble. Don't be surprised when you hear that a Christian has been persecuted. Rather, be surprised when you hear of a Christian who hasn't been. In a world that hated Jesus, how can we expect not to get some of that hate ourselves? If there's not a rub, if there's not a clash, if there's not some pushback in your life from the world, there might be something wrong with your faith. You see, according to historians, the Apostle John had a disciple who pastored this church at Smyrna. His name was Polycarp. Polycarp lived from 69 to 155 A.D. And he left his church quite the legacy. When the Roman proconsul threatened to burn him at the stake, unless he denounced Christ, Polycarp replied, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he never once wronged me. How shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? Rather than nail him to the wood, the executioner just tied him up with ropes. Polycarp promised he wouldn't flinch. From the stake he shouted, You threaten fire which burns for an hour and is soon quenched, for you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment. Witnesses said that the flames that were supposed to burn Polycarp, they refused to touch him. They encircled him like an arch. Someone wrote, We perceived a fragrant odor like the scent of incense. What would you expect from the pastor of Myrna? In the end, since Polycarp's body wouldn't burn, the executioner was required to plunge a dagger into his side. And even then, as legend has it, a dove exited from his body and enough blood flowed out to extinguish the flame. This was the Christian faith lived out at the church in Smyrna. Imagine trying to comfort this church. Last week I viewed a couple of episodes of New York Med. Ever seen the show? I'd never seen it before. I was just walking through the living room and I asked Kathy what she was watching. I sat down and it took me five minutes to get riveted to the TV. The show takes you into the emergency room at Presbyterian Hospital in New York City. It documents real life dramas. Sick people fighting the odds, battling death. Some winning, some losing. And as I watched the show, my problems didn't seem as large. I thought, how do you help people who are, whose lives are hanging in the balance? I mean, this was also the church at Smyrna. you got to understand, they were in the same situation. They, too, were facing the possibility of death. Remember, the book of Revelation was written to believers who had remembered Jesus while on earth, had actually seen Him ascend into heaven, and they knew He was coming back. But in the meantime, they were suffering some severe persecution. They were wondering, what's next for us? What hope would you give this suffering church? If you could direct their eyes, where would you fix them? Well, Revelation reveals heaven's answer to that question. 
It's Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Jesus reigns. His will is best. Jesus is king of the jungle. You see, Jesus is the answer that the sufferers at Presbyterian Hospital need. Jesus is the answer that the church of Smyrna needs. Whether you live or die, the point of it all, the point of the struggle is to know and walk and live with Jesus. He is the first and the last. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He alone holds the keys to Hades and death. You see, Jesus is what's next in God's plan for you. And unless you're looking for Jesus, you may miss it. Revelation unveils Jesus so you can find hope in Him. Here's how Jesus comforts the suffering church at Smyrna, verse 8. He says, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. He gives them a vision of who He is, but at the exact point of their need. You see, if I were facing death... This is the doctor with whom I'd schedule an appointment. He was dead and came to life. Now those are some credentials that would impress me if I was facing death. Jesus has first-hand experience with life and death situations. The doctors on New York Med, they admit that they're guessing most of the time. But Jesus has been wherever you're going. This is why throughout the ages, whenever the church is persecuted, it overcomes by looking to Jesus. The church of the catacombs endured by recognizing Jesus as their ultimate healer and their good shepherd. Remember, this book is titled Revelation. That means unveiling. Today, Jesus sits on the throne in heaven. Not just a model servant. Not just a sacrificial savior, but as a conquering king. In chapter 1, John saw the exalted Christ. And now to each of the seven churches, he reveals a different feature of his glory and authority that applies to them. G. Campbell Morgan once said, The supreme need in every hour of difficulty and depression is a vision of Jesus. To follow him, especially through difficulties, we need to see him as the one who is worthy to be followed. I hope you realize Jesus is the ultimate answer to whatever question you're asking. He's multifaceted. Jesus is like a Swiss army knife. He's all you need. He's all purpose. He has overcome. And now he speaks to every human need. Wherever you're at, Jesus is the next step. Whether my hardship is persecution or illness, or problems at work, or difficulties at school. I need to get my eyes on Jesus. He goes on to comfort the sufferers at Smyrna in verse 9. Jesus says, I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. This word poverty, it speaks of abject poverty. It's the idea of no food, no shelter. It was costly to be a Christian in Smyrna. To understand the pressures that this church was under, you need to realize the makeup of Roman society. You see, Rome had all kinds of factions and loyalties. It was divided up among trade guilds and labor unions and social rank and ethnic origin. There were slaves and free. There were citizens and non-citizens. There were civilians and soldiers. And each splinter group had a fraternal component. They acted like sororities or clubs. 
They would work side by side and then live nearby. And they would host celebrations together. And they would always worship their own peculiar god or goddess. This was problem number one for the Christians. For to get a job, you had to join a union. But to join the trade guild, you had to pay homage to its patron deity. And the Christians refused. They served one God, and His name was Jesus. This often meant to become a Christian was to join the ranks of the unemployed. But there was another problem for these Christians. Despite all of these factions, what brought all of Rome together was the worship of the emperor. There were temples all over the empire dedicated to Caesar. Here's how it would work. Citizens would enter the temple and they would approach the altar and they would take just a little pinch of incense and they would toss it on the fire and as they did, they would invoke their pledge of allegiance. They would say three words, Caesar is Lord. The Romans were somewhat tolerant. It didn't matter who else you worshipped as long as you bowed your knee to the Caesar. Famed archaeologist William Ramsey, he, he writes, In no part of the world was there such fervent and sincere loyalty to the emperors as in Asia. I mean, that's Smyrna. That's where we're talking. They deified him as the savior of mankind and worshipped him with wholehearted devotion as the present deity. Rome had brought peace to the previously war-torn region of Asia and Smyrna. These people viewed the emperor as their savior. In fact, in 26 AD, the city of Smyrna was rewarded with the privilege of building a temple dedicated to the emperor Tiberius. You see, there was no way that these Christians in Smyrna and all across Asia could avoid a confrontation with Rome. When they refused to bow their knee to Caesar, they became an enemy of the state. And now, finding a job was the least of their worries. They were hunted down like criminals. You see, if the Christians had bent just a little, if they had compromised ooh, just a little bit, if they'd agreed to just tip their hat to this god or to that goddess, they could have joined a trade union. They could have got a decent job. Just three little words, mind you. Caesar is Lord would have bought them peace and safety and a hassle-free life. And they could have downplayed their compromise. That's just a notch above paying taxes. Just three words, Caesar is Lord. They could have rationalized it as no big deal. But their conscience and their convictions wouldn't let them. They had seen the exalted Christ. They knew that Jesus was Lord of all lords and King of all kings. He had no rivals. And they refused to diminish Jesus by sharing their allegiance with anyone else especially some silly mythological deity or a Caesar with clay feet. Thus, they refused to bow their knee and they put a target on their back. And I love how Jesus comforts these loyal believers here in Smyrna. He lets them know that He knows. He sees what they're enduring for His name's sake. Their sacrifices have not gone unnoticed. He tells them in verse 9, I know your works, tribulation and poverty. You know, sometimes the greatest comfort we can bring to a sufferer is the simple acknowledgement of their pain. When wounds are open and emotions are raw, the person might not be ready or even looking for answers. In the midst of their grief, rational thought isn't always what they need. A shoulder to cry on. Someone who can say, 
I've been there. That sometimes provides the best comfort. Well, Jesus does just that. He says to them, I know, I know your poverty. But then he adds a quick truth that strikes sharply and gets right to the point. He adds, but you're rich. And then he goes right back to commiserating with them. Yes, they need a shoulder to cry on, but they also need to know the truth that their poverty is temporary. For Jesus sees them from his eternal perch and right around the corner he knows their untold treasures for those who wait for him. The comfort Jesus promises the church at Smyrna and every church for that matter is not the absence of conflict but it's peace in the midst of conflict. He doesn't promise us money but he promises us spiritual riches. He doesn't promise us happiness now but he promises us joy forever. My friend Gail Irwin, he sent me a fax recently. It read, your stock is in heaven, is rising. Invest everything. This is the realization that Smyrna needs. You see, the Christians in Smyrna, they couldn't get a job. They were enemies of the state. And they had a third problem as well. They had been kicked out of the local synagogue. You see, the only group exempt from emperor worship in Rome were the Jews. Which meant as long as Christianity was seen as a sect of Judaism, believers were safe from Roman hostilities. But once the Jews rejected the gospel and kicked the Christians out of the synagogue, they had no other refuge. It was sort of three strikes and you're out. And this is the dilemma Jesus discusses next, verse 9. He says, And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. You see, most of the early Christians were Jews. It was one thing to be an outcast from Roman society and be declared an enemy of the state, but to be divorced from your own heritage, this was a tougher pill to swallow. In in other words, if the governor calls you a heretic, that's one thing. But if it comes from your grandma, I mean, that really stings. And this is what was going on in Smyrna. Believers were being excommunicated from their own families. Mothers were no longer having anything to do with their sons. Fathers were renouncing their daughters. I mean, burn me at the stake, but please let me eat dinner at mama's table. And I'm not being flippant. The rejection of a spouse or a parent is often the most painful form of persecution. Jesus knows. He knows this himself. He knows this personally. John 1 verse 11 says of Jesus, He came to His own and His own did not receive Him. When you read that, you can just feel the pain in that verse, can't you? Pain oozes from that verse. He came to His own and His own did not receive Him. But it's interesting, Jesus endured such rejection by finding new family. Later in Luke chapter 8 verse 21, Jesus pointed to His disciples and He said of them, my mother and my brothers are those who heard the word, hear the word of God and do it. This is what Jesus is suggesting to the church at Smyrna. The occupants of this town synagogue claim to be God's people, but they're not, he tells them. They may be Jewish in name and in bloodline, but they have no spiritual relationship, no faith connection to God. Paul wrote the same of the Jews in Romans 2 verse 28. He says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. 
true children of God aren't just born into Abraham's family. You and I must be born again. The Jewish community in Smyrna, the religious community that had rejected their Messiah, had become a synagogue of Satan. They were the ones that God had rejected, not the believers in His Son Jesus. Jesus continues addressing the church in verse 10. He says, Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. This is some more tough meat to chew on. It's great to hear, no fear. But he warns, there's more tough stuff on the horizon. He talks about that which you are about to suffer. Again, this is not the kind of message that Jesus, that we'd like to hear from Jesus, is it? There's more to come. We want to hear that our sufferings are over. We don't like to prepare for more difficulty ahead. And yet this may well be the message that Jesus is wanting to deliver to us today. Think about it. In the days ahead, if you stand up for the biblical definition of marriage and declare homosexuality a sin, could you lose your job? Or at least get demoted? I mean, has eating at Chick-fil-A now become offensive? I heard it said, either you side with Chick-fil-A or you don't, but one thing is certain, if you want to continue eating chicken, you still need a hen and a rooster. <laughs> I, I mean, could your pro-life views get you passed over for the next promotion? If you pray in Jesus' name at a school assembly, will you be reprimanded? Or worse, if you declared at the next office party that Jesus is the only way to God, what would be the reaction? If our church refuses to officiate same-sex marriages, could we forfeit our tax-exempt status? Or worse, would our pastors be arrested for hate crimes? If we preach that Muhammad is a liar and Islam isn't true, Will our Muslim neighbors respect our freedom of speech? Or will we become targets for terrorism? If the U.S. elects a Mormon president, will churches be pressured to soften our stance on Mormonism and call it something other than the cult that it is? If you teach your kids creation at home, and then they go to the public school and question evolution, will they be allowed to do so without being mocked and ridiculed? You see, up until now, America has been an anomaly in the history of the church. Our government has allowed and afforded Christians unprecedented freedoms and protection. But over the span of history, America has been the exception rather than the rule. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3 verse 12, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. In most places, at most times, this has been the case. And it might become so again. Just yesterday, I saw an article that warned of growing hostility in America toward Christianity. This is certainly true today in places like Pakistan and Iran and Indonesia. There it's commonplace for Christians to be martyred. You know, you only hear about it when it happens to Americans. But local believers are killed with impunity in certain places. In fact, Regents University did a study and counted that in the year 2000, there were 165,000 Christians worldwide who died for the cause of Christ. 
Since 70 AD, they estimate that over 70 million Christians have been martyred for refusing to renounce their faith in Jesus. This is all why we need to take heed to our Lord's words here in verse 10. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Notice our Lord Jesus sees the current tribulation as a test. Persecution is always a test of the believer. It's a test of our love. What do we love more? Our job? Our popularity? Our friends? Our safety? Or Jesus? It's a test of our values. What's more important to us? Accolades in this life or a crown in the life to come? Do we live for man's approval or for heaven's reward? Persecution is a test of our faith. Who do we fear more? The enemy who can end our life on earth or the God who will determine our eternal destiny? You see, opposition is always a test. In verse 10, Jesus warns Smyrna, you will have tribulation ten days. This may have referred to an approaching trial that the local believers would have to face. Or it could speak to the church age we call Smyrna. Church historians have identified ten days or waves of persecution initiated by the Roman government during the second and third centuries A.D. At the time of John's writing, the church was experiencing the second swell of trouble at the hand of the emperor Domitian. Polycarp died in the fourth wave under the tyranny of Marcus Aurelius. The final attack of Roman sanctioned tribulation occurred in 312 AD under the hand of the emperor Diocletian. It's interesting, a church leader living at the time of Polycarp, he wrote of the effect that the persecution was having on Christianity. It might surprise you. It was Tertullian who authored the famous line, The blood of the martyrs has become the seed of the church. In other words, the more the church was assaulted, the more it grew. Tribulation does this. It always drives off the insincere in the hypocrite. It strips the self-seeker of his motivation. A persecuted church becomes a pure church. And a pure church becomes a more powerful and vibrant church. It's true, persecution knocks the straddlers off the fence. It's no surprise, tribulation eventually brings multiplication. And this is why Jesus tells us when persecution comes, do not fear. In the wake of the hard times, passion is purified, numbers are multiplied, Jesus is glorified. Persecution, big or small, is an opportunity to prove our loyalty to the Master and win a crown of life. You know, I saw a few weeks ago that the Olympic gold medals that were passed out in London, they're not exactly gold. Did you see this? The actual medal consists, the actual gold medal consists of 92.5% silver and less than 2% gold. Talk about a letdown. You win a gold medal that isn't even gold. There's only a little over 1% of the medal is actually gold. Well, in contrast, there will be no letdowns in heaven. For the crown of life is 100% life. 
It's eternal life and victorious life and abundant life and spiritual life and peaceful life and thrilling life and overflowing life and joyous life and reigning life. This is why Jesus says in verse 11, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. See, today's subject is not what we normally like to hear. The only time we think about it is when we're forced to. But we need to take heed. Jesus closes his letter to the church at Smyrna with a tremendous promise. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. The second death is a technical term. We find it three more times in Revelation. In chapter 20, verse 14, it's synonymous with the day when death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. It's the ultimate punishment, you might say. The second death is the start of what we might call eternal damnation. In essence, Jesus is saying, you need to fear the second death. Don't worry about the first death. There's worse things that can happen to you than the first death. That's true. I hope you know there, there's some worse things that can happen to you than you just dying. I mean, you can almost die and live the rest of your life in a vegetative state. That would be worse. You could be tortured before you die. You could watch your loved ones die before you do. There are a lot of things worse than death. You could get stuck in an elevator with a tech fan singing Ramblin' Wreck over and over and over. <laughs> it's the only song those people know. I mean, there are plights worse than death. Don't worry about the first death. It's unavoidable. All it does is separate us temporarily from our bodies. Rather, be concerned about the second death. This is spiritual death. This is serious. This is eternal separation from God. Jesus died to save us from this death. Avoid it at all costs. You know, there's an old saying. Born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. If you're born again of God's Spirit... You may die physically, but you'll live forever spiritually. Well, today, there's a twofold challenge. First, if persecution ever knocks on our door, let's be ready. Let's do a little soul searching. Let's count the cost. Let, let's examine our own hearts. Would we pass the test? Let's make sure we can. And then let's pray for the church of Smyrna all around the world. For right now, there are believers in imminent danger. Let's pray that God will give them a revelation of their triumphant king, that they would realize that Jesus is king of the jungle. Let's pray that by faith, God will help them overcome.